Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you could join us. This is episode 79. Uh, we are coming to you on June 14th. That's when we're recording at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett, as always. With me, as always, are my co-hosts, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, guys, I, I don't know about you, but I have been riveted to this uh, this PGA golf tournament and the return of some, some actual live sports. Any, any, any of you feeling the same? I watched a little bit of it. Well, as as we're speaking, oh, I think someone just won. I think Daniel Berger just won. So, breaking news. Daniel Berger beat Morikawa in the playoff to win the, the golf tournament. Zach, have you been have you been catching up on your uh, your uh, PGA tour? <laughs> That's a laughable question. Uh, no, but uh, I did text Todd this week. I should have texted you. Man, we were like two weeks off with the Willie T. Ribs um, review because that would have been perfect conversation for this Bubba Wallace uh, moment. Oh, I know. I mean, we, we, we were like ahead of the curve maybe, so we can pat ourselves on the back a little bit. Um, I think we made it happen. I, I think we were hashtag influencers for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I did get a text from Adam this uh, this week, and he's like, Dude, since the podcast, the ratings on Uppity are up on IMDb. I was like, yeah, I think that's more because of what's going on in NASCAR than us doing a podcast on it. <laughs> I, hey, who knows? You know, we single-handedly resurrected the cultural legacy of Come to the Stable. We can do the same with Uppity, a really Willie T. Rib story. It's true. It's true. Hey, I wanted to share a quick headline, though. This was my favorite headline this week. Did you guys see that there was a truck series driver who um, resigned uh, from NASCAR because he was so offended that they dare took away his Confederate flag? And Deadspin had an amazing uh, uh, headline, which was, Driver honors Confederacy by retiring with same number of wins. That, that's that, a great one. That made me nice. chuckle. I think I heard that NASCAR's response was, yeah, when we had to look up who you were, you're not going to be missed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having some fabulous Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Very nice, very nice. Working through the supply? Yes, I'm toward the end of it. Todd, what do you got? This is the Kraken mixed with... Uh, apricot nectar so definitely takes away that black Dude. spice from burn and it's pretty awesome <laughs> wow that's that's quite the quite the combo there all right so i've got i've got this beer it is out of firestone walker brewery in california it is the nitro merlin milk stout and the coolest thing about this thing it's kind of like a, a guinness type of beer but um, I was talking to Todd before we got on, and he said I had to do this live on the podcast. So we're going to do this, um, and you guys won't be able to see it. But there's instructions on how to pour it. And so um, here, here we go. I'm going to tilt this down a little bit, guys, so you guys can, can watch me do this. So it says I need to invert the can three times, pop it open, and it says surge pour. And then just let it kind of let it happen. 
So so let's let's see how this goes. So one, two, three, and then yes. just like that. Just like that. Look at that. Look at that beauty right there. Oh, it's perfect. That is a perfect pour. And then just like Guinness, you gotta let it settle a little bit. You can see the coloring change. That's how you know it's good. So there you go. I can't even take a sip yet. I gotta let that sit. So there we go. It fit in my glass. That's good, because I didn't want to have to clean it up. <laughs> Taking gimmicky beer to a new level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that before. A surge pour from a can. That, that was Surging a out to sea. I could never write that. I think it was Bukowski. Uh... Well, uh, thank you guys so much for uh, for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, iTunes, and Spotify. You can find us there as well. Uh, AlmostSideways.com has all the latest uh, ratings and rankings that we uh, we put out there. Uh, you can find us Facebook, on Twitter. Um, I just did a recent update. I, I didn't tell you guys I was going to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. I just did a recent update on the website and got in our complete 1975 list. So Todd, I don't even think you saw this yet. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you guys what you think is our website's top five for 1975. I don't even remember sending you my list. Oh, it was a long time ago. Oh, so it could be different. Top five of 75, uh, like site wide between the four of us, Dog three Day of us and Adam. Dog Day Afternoon is number two. Cuckoo's Nest. Cuckoo's Nest is number one. Jaws. Jaws is number three. Uh, Nashville. Nashville, I think, is sixth. Okay. I think only two of us have seen it. Yeah, that's the problem. I only have a top seven, and Adam only has a top four. I only say you have to have at least a two and a half stars to qualify for my list, so I only have a top seven. I'm going to uh, say the other two... Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, that's a good guess, though. <laughs> number four is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and number uh, five is Barry Lyndon. Uh, 75's uh, a good only, year. Only two of you have seen, which are the two of you, but it's number four on Zach's list and number two on Todd's. So that uh, there you go. So you can find great stuff like that. Like, that would have been our best picture lineup if, if we were voting. Well, that's so, not what my uh, list looks like anymore, so I'll have to send you an updated one. You'll have to send me an updated one, and I'll fix it. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, that there is a nice little detour. <laughs> Todd, what have you been watching? Uh, so just earlier today, actually, I watched a movie I'd never seen, which was the 1972's The Poseidon Adventure, directed by Ronald Neem. And I wouldn't have watched it except for... I saw it had nine Oscar nominations, but like none of them were significant ones except for a supporting actress for Shelley Winters. Wait, so, I don't know, I was trying to think, like, a movie, what's the last movie like that that ha would just, like, dominated below the line, but wasn't good enough to get, like, any significant <laughs> nominations? Like, I can't, I can't think of the last time that happened. King Kong? In a way, King Kong, and I was thinking The Dark Knight, maybe, but, I, it's, it's kind of weird. I don't, the, the movie's not that great, it's a, it's like a two and a half star movie, it's, it's about the, this big old ship that, gets taken over by a tidal wave and they have to struggle to survive. It had a remake in 2005 that was really bad. This yeah, one's kind of cool, though. That it, ha it has uh, Gene Hackman 
Ernest Borgnine, Leslie Nielsen. It, it's a cool cast, and there's some fun moments, and it definitely ha- has some uh, ahead of its time visuals and stuff, but it's a two-and-a-half-star movie. It's fine, but I just I think it's crazy. Nine Oscar nominations for this like weird action movie. I think it we'd be talking about other movies in that sense if the lineup was still... Um, hadn't expanded. So, like, I think you're, you'd be talking about stuff like Ford v. Ferrari and maybe The Revenant in that sense. But that got, that's still got a had... director nomination. True, true. That, but, is a, um, that is a camp classic, Todd. In, in my house, we watched that movie and made fun of it. Shelley Winters, I mean, my goodness, what a performance there. It's basically the, uh, it's it, 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 what airplane or what airport was to airplane movies, airplane disaster movies, this did to ship movies, and there has to be a morning after. One of the great quasi, like, should be in a softcore porn best song winners of the 70s. <laughs> yes. you it's, it's amazing. Absolutely. I have not seen that one. I, ha- I did see the uh, remake in theaters. Which was a mistake. Wow. But yeah. yeah. Was that Kurt Russell and Josh Lucas? Yep. Yep. That's it. That's the one. Well, it's on TCM, Terry, if you want to catch it. I, I did see it was on TCM this weekend, actually. <laughs> All right. Zach, how about you? So uh, the movie <coughs> I, I watched this week came from my favorite YouTube reviewer, and his name is Horrible Reviews. That's his channel name. I don't know his real name. He's some guy from the Netherlands who reviews really disturbing and graphically violent movies. And it's great because I don't have to watch him, but I get to see like all the most gory stuff, and he talks about it. It's, it's, it's a great channel. He's really awesome. Uh, if he's listening to this, this podcast, you should join us, man. You're awesome. Anyway, um, he suggested a movie called Be My Cat, a film for Anne which is a movie that I'd never heard of before. It is a mockumentary that was made in 2015 about a Romanian filmmaker named Adrian Tofai, and he's also the writer and director of this movie, and he stars in it. And he plays uh, essentially a, a crazier version of himself, and he's, try- he's trying to convince Anne Hathaway to star in his movie that he's making in Romania because he saw her in The Dark Knight Rises and fell in love with her and her performance. So he casts these other actresses who look a little similar to Anne Hathaway, Way, and he just basically like workshops these scenes with these actresses to show Anne Hathaway that he's like a legitimate director and then he strangles and kills all the actresses um, which is pretty fun and uh, it, it's not a great movie but it's like a classic horrible reviews movie I mean I love that this guy reviews stuff like this on, on his YouTube page it's like a two star movie it's free streaming on Amazon Prime it's like it, it's a fun schlocky movie that shows you know the, the fan obsessive mentality a little bit and the guy is really funny he, he looks like Zizek the philosopher and talks a little like him too um yeah just you know great shock exploitation sort of stuff I wonder if Anne Hathaway's ever seen it that's pretty I, awesome I've never heard of it that it's, sounds awesome yeah, it's. It, it, I wouldn't say it's a great movie it's probably more fun to talk about and think about than to actually watch it but it has its charm under a thousand views yes it would Perfect. not. Have, it would not have made my pe- best films under a thousand views, but maybe the most interesting films out there under a thousand views. Maybe that list deserves a spot. I, I I will say I'm relieved to know that his name isn't horrible reviews. 
That, that, that was a I don't know what his name is, but he's awesome. Check out his movies. He, his, his channel was taken off YouTube a little while ago, but now he's back putting out great content. I love you, man. He also drinks beers uh, and watches movies, so he's, he's awesome. Nice, nice. All right, so I have a movie I'm going to talk about, too. Uh, but first, before I do that, we, uh, we spent a lot of time uh, kind of reviewing and hashing out The Last Dance when it was on. And uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but since it's been off, uh, ESPN has started their new uh, 30 for 30 season on Sunday nights. And I've still been keeping up on that. There was a two-part Lance Armstrong documentary, and then last week was uh, a Bruce Lee documentary. This week is a documentary on the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Uh, have you guys been watching any of these? I watched the Bruce Lee one. The Bruce Lee one was fascinating. And I, I didn't realize what his whole story was of how he came to America and and how he became the film legend he was and how few movies he actually made. I thought that was, that was all really fascinating. And how he only made really one American film. Um... The Lance Armstrong one was really interesting, especially after watching The Last Dance, because I think one of the one of the main things you got you gathered out of watching The Last Dance is how horrible of a human being Michael Jordan is at times. Just in in and that's kind of how he had to be to be as competitive and as as dominant as he was. Um, Lance Armstrong is what Michael Jordan would be if he got caught and busted for something. Because he is as much of a horrible person. Like, we're watching it and, like, biggest douchebag of all time, potentially Lance Armstrong. He is just a horrible, horrible person. Like, all throughout, he's just terrible. But it's it's one of those, it's what gives him that competitive edge to win. And then he gets busted, and some of his, his rationale that he gives for why he lied the way he did for so long and how many people he threw under the bus was really fascinating to listen to because he was completely uncensored and unplugged and just kind of going for it. And uh, it's a really fascinating watch if you're interested at all in, in the psyche of someone like that who, I mean, he lied for upwards of like 10 years about his, his uh, doping. And then when he finally got, the, when finally some proof came out about it, um, he, he finally gave, uh, gave in, but yeah, he, he sued people. He, you know, bashed people. It was fascinating watch. So interesting watch. If you want to catch that anyways, uh, the movie I'm talking about is my anniversary watch of the, uh, of the week this week. And it is, uh, from 1990. So 30 years ago, uh, this film was nominated for two Oscars. It is postcards from the edge. Uh, directed by Mike Nichols and uh, written by Carrie Fisher based on her book, which is semi-autobiographical about her life, her struggles with addiction, and her relationship with her mother, Debbie Reynolds. Uh, in Postcards from the Edge, the two leads are played by Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine. Um, and uh, you also have... It, it's got a great cast. You've also got Dennis Quaid, Gene Hackman, Richard Dreyfus, Rob Reiner. Uh, Annette Benning has a tiny little role in it. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a great cast. Um, and it, it tells the story of a, of a movie actress who is, ha, goes through rehab and is trying to work her way back and figure out who she is with a, a movie star mother whose fame and, uh, eclipses her at all times. 
And uh, I would say it's worth watching to watch Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine spar on screen together because it is just electric. Um, but ultimately, it's kind of forgettable. Uh, I'm giving it two and a half stars. It, it's an interesting story. It, there's some great performances in there, but like I said, ultimately forgettable. It was nominated for two Oscars, like I said. Uh, Meryl Streep got a Best Actress uh, nomination because, of course, she did. And uh, the other one is for Best Original Song, which is the song that uh, she performs in the closing scene, which apparently gave an Oscar nomination to the writer of that song, Shel Silverstein, the like children's poem author. So that I thought that was really interesting, too. But yeah. Um, worth a watch to watch them, but ultimately kind of a forgettable movie. Two and a half stars for me. Have either of you guys seen Postcards from the Edge? Yeah, we pretty much have the same review of it. Okay. I remember nothing from it, and I, but I've seen it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that definitely constitutes a disappointment, right? Because Mike Nichols, you know, Meryl Streep, Shirley MacLaine, you'd expect some fireworks, and obviously well, and didn't especially happen. Especially, you know that there's there's a great story there with Carrie Fisher, and and kind of what what she went through in the '80s, and uh, I it it was funny. I'm watching it. I could see how this could have been a great movie, but it just never got there. It almost played, and I wonder if it was, if it played safe because Carrie Fisher is talking about her real life and talking about her mother, who is definitely someone who is in the spotlight. And you have someone like Meryl Streep, who is a contemporary of Carrie Fisher, and Shirley MacLaine, who's a contemporary of Debbie Reynolds, playing these people and wanting to not offend them in their performances. I could see some of that being why it didn't have as take as much of take as many risks as it could have, um, because that's what it would have needed to do to be a great movie and be memorable. So, all right. So let's move on from that to our featured review of the week. And our featured review is the new Spike Lee joint that just came out this weekend on Netflix. Um, which is interesting because this is one that was always meant to debut on Netflix. I think even always meant to debut this weekend. And the timing of it couldn't have been better with what else is going on in our country. This is The Five Bloods. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. Dead a man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. Uh, again, written and directed by Spike Lee. Uh, Zach, I'm going to you first. Tell us all about Defy Bloods and what you thought. Well, sp well, you know, needless to say, it was also written by uh, Lawrence, Kansas's own uh, Kevin Wilmot, co-written oh, by Kevin Wilmot with Spike Lee. Kevin Wilmot, if you're listening out there, shout out to you, man. Um, so, yeah, The Five Bloods... You should just send this to him. I, I should. I'm sure he has lots of time to listen to it. Uh, okay, so The Five Bloods is uh, the latest Spike Lee joint. Um, I did not realize it was made for Netflix. That's interesting. That... I don't know if that influences my review a little bit, but it changes a little bit of how I think about the movie. Um, but um, Defy Bloods tells the story of uh, four African-American Vietnam War veterans um, played by Delroy Lindo, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. He's the guy that says, shit, in all of uh, Spike, Spike's movies, in case you were wondering. Clark you Peters. You in The Wire. Oh, yeah. That originated. 
Clark Peters and Norm Lewis. And, and the fifth soldier is played by Todd's favorite actor, Chadwick uh, Boseman, but he's only seen in flashbacks. And um, I'm interested to see what Todd thought of his performance. Anyway, uh, so they, they are, um, the, the setting kind of flip, goes back and forth between present day and, and, and when they were soldiers in the Vietnam War. Um, although interestingly enough, they they it's not like Spike casts younger actors to play them. Um, they're they're them older selves in the flashback sequences, which I actually thought was sort of interesting. It, it recalled a little bit of The Irishman. Actually, there were a number of things in this movie that were called The Irishman. Um, it didn't actually work that horrible, though. I almost liked it more than Scorsese's use of um, the de aging because Spike just kind of put some shadows over them a little bit, made the footage a little grainy, and I actually thought it worked worked out uh, pretty nice. Although it was noticeable. You you could you could notice it anyway um this the, the i guess the basic premise of this movie is it's the deer hunter meets the treasure of the sierra madre with a bit of um racial was certainly a bit of racial overtones to it um because uh the the four of the five bloods go back to vietnam um not only to, to honor their old friend and also try to locate his remains but also to find this buried treasure that they came across when uh, they were in vietnam and um, accompanying them is also uh, a few other characters, including Delroy Lindo's uh, son in the movie, who's played by, what's he played? Uh, Jonathan Majors. And then we come across this, uh, this group of French people um, who are uh, into defusing bombs, and they're played by Jasper Paddokin, uh, Paul Walker Hauser, who's become uh, apparently a regular in Spike Lee movies, and Melanie Thierry. And um, so... Uh, you know, it's an enjoyable movie. I mean, there's a, it's a Spike Lee movie. You, you can tell that right away. I mean, he's, he's throwing in, um, you know, some archival footage of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Um, there are times when the movie uh, has um, riffs that almost like jazz feel like they're kind of out of nowhere and they feel sort of improvised. Um, but uh, it's part of Spike's aesthetic. Um, you know, I could probably do without uh, you know, the, the whole, um, not, uh, the, the whole, like, people walking across, or going across the planks, or the, the moving platform, like he does in every movie, that's like a, you know, trademark Spike Lee thing, the movie's way too long, and, and I, I guess what I want to get at is, you know, this is like, maybe a danger of Netflix, which is that Netflix gives these directors a lot of money, and a lot of creative freedom and maybe final cut privileges i'm not sure but you know we're on the danger maybe we're on the dangerous precipice of chimino in 1980 and gates of heaven where maybe directors have too much say over how their movies are, are released um maybe not too much say but like this movie is two and a half hours it should have been one and a half hours maybe an hour 45 minutes um that's not to say it's not an enjoyable experience to watch, though. Um, it, it told an interesting story. I thought it had uh, a unique perspective. I can't think of very many movies about African-American soldiers in Vietnam. And it, I think it, it juxtaposes their experience of being soldiers representing the United States, but also oppressed members of the U.S. population with some of the, some of the Vietnamese characters in the movie, too, which, which I liked. Um, some of the more uh, filmic stuff, some of the, like, the, the, the plot about the gold, to me, was a little silly. There's a Jean Reno character who, in the movie, kind of um, is meant to re reflect Trump a little bit. Trump is mentioned in the movie quite a bit. Um, I don't know. I feel very similar to this movie I felt about Black Klansman. I don't think it's one of Spike's best movies, um, I, but uh, it's an enjoyable watch. I love Spike Lee. I'll watch anything he does. It is certainly better than the previous movie that Spike made with the word duh in the title, which was The Sweet Blood of Jesus. And I made that joke last week, too. Um, yeah, three stars. Solid movie. I think Delroy Lindo is maybe a front runner for Best Actor at the Oscars.
Okay, all right. Um, I'll go next. I, I, I like this movie a whole lot more than you did. I'm giving it three and a half stars. I think it's uh, the best movie I've seen so far this year, which, I mean, we haven't seen a whole lot, so it's not saying too much. But um, but I, I really uh, I really enjoyed it. I didn't think it was necessarily too long. I, I, uh, I Watching it to start with, <clears throat> it almost felt like so there there's all these um like old actor buddy movies that have come out in like the last 5 or 10 years like Last Vegas and Going in Style and it almost felt like that at first mm-hmm. but uh but I think it it was able to grow into something more um also I couldn't help but think of Miracle at St. Anna which was his other war movie about African American serving that one was in World War 2 um which was not a very good movie. Um, but I thought some of the images in this of, of it feeling like, you know, it, it like it plays Flight of the Valkyries as the riverboat's going down the river, trying to make you feel like you're in Apocalypse Now, and then you realize that you, you're just sitting there with a bunch of old guys, and, and you see the, the Jordans hanging from the wire over the river. I mean, it just some of that stuff I, I thought was just so perfect and so, so subtle uh yet um effective for spike and um one of the things that he always seems to do uh which is one of the things that really bothered me about black Klansman, is he struggles to let the message of his film stand on its own instead he tries to hit you over the head with it and tell you over and over and over again and take you out of the story to tell you what the message of his film is um and he still does that a little bit, but for Spike, it's actually somewhat restrained in in telling you what the um, what his message is. Partially, I think because I think it, the story he uncovers in this is so good, and there's so so much richness in the story. I agree. Delroy Lindo is insane, and yes, he should be a front runner for best actor. Um, it would be a four star movie. But the la- the third act gets a little chaotic and out of control. Like I- I'm half I was halfway through this movie and I said, if this movie goes in this direction, this is a masterpiece. And then it went I mean, it wasn't even a 180. It wasn't even the third act isn't even on the map of what I thought was possible in where this film ends up going. But um but it it, uh, it still is is worth watching, and it still is a really 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 good movie. Um, I will say, oh, what was I gonna say? There was some comment you made, and I was gonna respond to it, and it's gone. So I'll come back to it. Todd, what do you think about uh, *The Five Bloods*? Well, I agree with some of what you said. Like, yeah, Del really knows amazing. Although I think Clark Peters is the standout. Uh, and at the beginning, I did. I thought the same thing about it just being like an old guy picture. Like, I was thinking, like, am I watching like the best exotic Marigold Hotel or something like that? Like, they get there, they like go clubbing, they're like day drinking, they go on a safari. I'm like, what the hell am I watching? And but and they're just like giving each other shit, and that doesn't really stop until they're like actually out on their mission. But, which was a weird set up because the rest of it is just Spike Lee playing with other genre conventions like it, there's definitely Treasure of the Sierra Madre in there a lot like, maybe that's why the uh, actors are acting so kooky most of the time and he has his normal Spike Lee stuff you know the floating body like the breaking of the fourth wall speeches 
and like the archival footage put in historical context but the problem is that none of it really works like i feel like this is his least ambitious movie since inside man like it's it's really just a geriatric version of triple frontier and it is nothing more it's an action movie this is not like a social commentary or a war movie or a man versus nature movie it, there's a reason why it's a netflix movie is because he couldn't sell it because it's kind of a mess and there's a reason why it's coming out in early summer it's because it has no oscar aspirations and i mean if you measure your expectations you'll have a pretty good time and i'm feeling generous i'll give it i'll give it two and a half stars but this is a kind of a cha- like a really chaotic really kind of garbage action movie that is masquerading as something important because of what everyone wants to make out of it in the current time. I remembered what I was going to say. I was going to mention about the the de-aging and how Spike, honestly, yeah, he kind of keeps him in the shadows sometimes, but he doesn't even really try in those flashback scenes to to de-age them. Like, he, well, he wants he did to that show that the picture, the photo, yeah. and it looks awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. You could tell that it was just, like, them with, like, some deformed head or something it, yeah it was, so, it was bad that but, never but I kinda, that you never got used to it when watching these old guys all over 70 like fighting the war with guys in their 20s like, it made no sense but see i thought it worked because uh, they it was them going back and experiencing all those memories with as as who they are i i don't know i thought it worked i it mean was a weird choice i I, I see point I, I I agree with both your points. I mean, um I understand where Todd's coming from because it is chaotic. I mean it, it is messy. I think there's a lot of this movie that should have been chopped off because it just it doesn't really belong in the story and I actually think I and, and I agree with you, Terry, too, that but the, that the, the the um the shortcoming of Spike sometimes is that he has to use this extraneous material to make his point kind of obvious. And I feel like he does do that in this movie. But maybe not with some of the stuff that we, we saw in, in Black Klansman, which was, you know, essentially cutaways, but again, just kind of characters and dialogue that doesn't really go anywhere in this story and kind of remains inert. I will say, though, I thought the middle passage of this movie was interesting. I think once you get past the whole, like, Las Vegas bullshit setup that we you both discussed, I think it is sort of an interesting story. And, and we see, if, if you know Treasure Seer Madre, you know, the Delroy Lindo-Humphrey Bogart parallels are sort of interesting. But I think it's sort of interesting, too, how Delroy Lindo isn't necessarily motivated by greed. He's more motivated by uh, the oppression that um, he's felt and the anger that he still feels um, at his country. And the anger that he feels for having lost his friend, too. So I think Delroy Lindo is the standout in this movie. I think that's what a lot of critics are, are agreeing on too. But uh, I, I see both your points. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's it manifests as anger, but it's really, I'm, it's PTSD, survivor's guilt, is what he's been dealing with that has come out as this, as this completely, you know, un unwarranted anger and unfound anger in some ways it, it's fascinating i thought his character was fascinating well i liked clark, clark peters a lot more and isaiah whitlock jr is just there to say she i mean he's like he's the he's the comic relief in the movie pretty much and i don't know i guess he's playing the same thing he did in cedar rap is just reminding you that he is clay davis he is never going to live up to the wire and he knows that and it's it's kind of like a joke at this point almost in his career. But Can John we... McBoseman does do an okay job. Like, he has a really juicy part, and he pretty much does a decent. Like, Jonathan Majors also has a really juicy part, and, and he's pretty good, too. 
Yeah, and I also think Paul Walker Hauser is pretty good in this movie, considering how awful he was in Black Klansman. Yeah, it's kind of nice to see him in something where he does it, every word he says doesn't feel like there's a couple screws loose upstairs. Well, his, um, uh, his fellow Klansman member was the other guy, right? Right, right, it, it, and it's really funny how how Spike takes these two guys that were the yeah. the heads of the of the clan in Black Klansman and makes them these like peace corps people that are out defusing old vietnam war mines uh, i thought that that was interesting um and i i really liked uh jasper pocken in uh in black klansman and he needs to do more than just spike lee films because he's a great actor all right yeah. well it feels like what always happens has happened here we've got a two and a half star we've got a three star we've got a three and a half star we're kind of all over the map uh, and we got one in the middle that uh, that understands both sides. Looking at how this uh, this year in movies is trending, with still, I mean, everything's starting to push back a couple more weeks now. Tenet is at the end of July instead of mid-July. Um, and, and this is something we've seen. It has come out. Uh, and with the topicalness of it, is this potentially right film right time best picture no i like i said this there's a reason why it's coming out now is because it's not trying to do that it's trying to be an action movie <laughs> well yeah but also it it's it's out i mean how many other movies are that are going to be those oscar Beatty type of movies are going to come out this will be nominated for best picture i I, I think it, it, it's almost a guarantee, I feel like. I mean, it has like a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Spike is long overdue. Delroy Lindo, I, I mean, also overdue. I don't know how this movie... I mean, unless a, a wealth of movies is released and we go back to no, some sort of normalcy, this, I think this is like... I don't know if I would make it the front runner for Best Picture, but I think it, it's getting a nomination. Well, yeah. we don't have that many... Yeah, like you say, we don't have that many movies that are... Uh, eligible right now, but I feel like if we're getting toward the fall, then all these movies that are supposed to come out in theaters are going to they're going to have some sort of rule where it's like you can just put your movie on on demand for a week or something, and then they'll take it off and you'll be eligible for the Oscar even if it doesn't get released until next year. I mean, there'll be something like that. We'll still have a full slate of movies that are going to be Oscar eligible, so I don't think we're going to be choosing just like Onward and like like uh, whatever else bullshit came out uh, in the first three months of the year as our Best Picture nominees, just because no, nothing else is owned by Netflix or whatever. I, I don't... I don't True, think this is, this is really... I mean, I, it, it would be stretching it if this is considered for Best Picture. But at the same time, you also haven't had your, uh, your festival runs that you normally have. I mean, look at the last couple years. Um, no one was talking about Parasite till it won the Palm d'Or. Can's not happening. Um... No one was talking about Green Book till it won the audience award at TIFF. TIFF isn't happening. I mean, so I mean, what's Netflix has I, a lot of movies still coming out this year too, though. I mean, I true, very true. But I'm not sure I, I what, think, what but with the cachet of Spike Lee though, and the topicality of it, as we've already talked about, uh, and, what, and the well, critical like reviews. Like I said, Triple Frontier, Triple Frontier was the same way though last year, and, and nobody cared. What what I'm saying is. Our, our scope of what films are going to be considered is going to be a lot narrower this year because we are going on, what, 
our fourth month without any movies entering theaters. We, and that's why um, people gave good losing... reviews, because they were starving for a real movie. But don't you think that once theaters open, that people are going to be... The first movie people see in the theater, regardless of how good it is, it's going to get, like, unanimous praise, because people are going to have been seen in a theater again? So, so in other words, Tenet's going to win Best Picture. Tenet is going to get almost unanimous praise, even though it's probably not going to be that good. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought I thought he was talking about Unhinged, the the Russell Crowe slasher movie that's coming <laughs> that's out. That's the that first too. one to come out in theaters. Sure. Yeah. See, I, I I think I think Unhinged is a sacrificial lamb that everyone's no one's going to go see because no one wants to go back to theaters. And then you get to the end of July and Mulan and Tenet are going to come out. Now I I think I think this has a shot. I think this this year I. This here might be a perfect storm to, that sees this, you know, Delroy Lindo potentially winning Best Actor. You might see Spike finally win a Best Director. And and maybe even this end up at Best Picture. Just because of the circumstances of what's happening in our world, not only with Hollywood shutting down, but also with um, with the activism that's going on right now. I think it, I, I feel like this might be perfect storm, right movie, right time. I would not be surprised... If whenever the Oscars end up happening, we're talking about the Five Bloods as a heavy, heavy Oscar contender. I, I agree. Hope not. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying. I know you hope not because you didn't necessarily like it. But do you see what I'm saying? I mean, if it was a decent movie, I would say that you had a point. But you can't just throw... I mean, that's, that'd be like if Chirac came out right now. You'd probably say the same thing. Even though that is even more, like, way beyond Spike Lee normal stuff. You know? I, I, I think there's... There, is, wouldn't it be funny if there's a scenario out there where, like, very few movies are even released. And so, like, Melanie Thierry gets a nomination. Or, like, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. gets a nomination. Like, I could see... There's, like... I feel, I feel like there's a 5% chance this movie gets, like, 20 Oscar nominations. We're, we're, we're going to be talking about Delroy Lindo over Ben Affleck for Best Actor. Yeah. Well, we still have Mank coming out on Netflix, so... At yes. Least we have one uh, that we know is going I think, to be a better movie than this. I think that is probably looking at being a the, the front runner right now. I think that's a pretty safe front runner at this point. But, uh, yeah. Anyways, The Five Bloods is pretty easy to find. Um, and, uh... I think, especially with what's going on, it might be it might be an important movie to watch uh, in these times. Now let's now let's actually pull a complete 180 and talk about something completely different because we're going to spend the rest of this podcast deep diving uh, a classic from 1995, celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. That might just be like one of Zach's like top 10 favorite movies of all time. Uh, would I go with... Am I stretching there? No. Ten? Absolutely not. If yeah. we're talking about pure enjoyment, absolutely. Okay. We are talking about Clueless. Mr. Hall was way harsh. He gave me a C minus. <laughs> well, he gave me a C, which drags down my entire average. Hello? There was a stop sign. I totally paused. You tried driving in platforms. And uh, we're going to be getting into all all things about uh, about Clueless, but we always start off with some trivia, and we're going to do this a little differently than we normally do it, and I'll I'll explain why. Um, like I said, this is like a top ten all time 
favorite Zack movie. Um, and this week, in preparation for this podcast, I watched this movie for the first time. I, I did not want to spend my first time watching this movie worrying about what kind of trivia questions I was going to be asking Zach for this uh, for this podcast. So I didn't think about it, and if I got around to watching it a second time this week, I was going to spend some time coming up with some trivia questions. I didn't have a chance to do that. So I have one trivia question. Todd's got a few more. We're all going to stay on for the whole thing. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to get a chance to like maybe try and answer some of these. But really, it's just going to be Zach showing off at how much he loves this movie. So, should I go with my one trivia question first? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't I don't know if I'm wording this well, but we're going to go with it. Um, and I don't even know how hard of a question this is, so we'll see. Um, so my question is, what family does Cher say Josh looks like he belongs to? He's kind of a Baldwin. Baldwin, yeah. He's kind of a Baldwin. There we go. That's my one question I had. One of the many dated things we'll talk about with this movie, because now being called a Baldwin is not necessarily a compliment <laughs> in terms of your looks. Uh, th- this is true. This is like true. Like the former Mariners pitcher, James Baldwin. There you go. There you go. That That's not the same thing. Well, well I, I guess now you would say he's kind of a Hemsworth. Would that be? Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or right. Jonas or something. Or a, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, Todd, go with your questions. Okay, I have nine questions worth 15 points, Zach. So wait a second, is Terry answering them too? He can try I, to answer. He's not going to get one of these. G- give, me, give me a chance to see if I even know what it's referring to before you give the answer, Zach. Okay. What emblem is on Murray's ne- necklace? Nope. <laughs> uh, ooh, uh, is, it a, is it like a, a cash money sign? No, it is a okay, Superman I don't know. symbol. That is a good what? question. Solid question. Can wow. we're okay. wearing that necklace in one scene though? So here's kind of a dumbish question, but also kind of awesome because I know this. Which season of Beavis and Butthead was Sharon Josh watching? Oh my god, that's that's all. <laughs> that's awesome that you know the answer to that. I'm gonna go with season two. You're you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> How many seasons of Beavis and Butthead were there? There were like four or five. Okay. Um. So Cher is around and talks about food a lot, but which three foods is she actually seen eating in the movie? Ooh, um, okay. Food she's seen eating. All right, isn't she, like, at one point eating, like, Cheetos? No. With jo- well, Josh eats Cheetos on the couch. Oh. Yeah, uh, she eats lunch with D with Dion, and she you know shows her how to cut her her plate. Is that one? Can can that count as one of the foods? I don't know what she's eating though. She, she doesn't actually eat in that scene. Okay. Foods that she's eating. Wow, that's a really interesting question. There are three foods that she eats. Yeah, one of them she eats in the kitchen. One of them she eats at the dining table, and one of them she eats in the classroom. So that narrows it down for you. It, I mean, so like, is it the food that she eats when you know, like, they're at dinner with her dad and Josh is there, or or yeah. the later dinner scene when when Ty is there? Okay, I don't know what food that is though. I can't remember. Okay, so in the kitchen, she pulls out like a big old tray of carrots and she eats one. And when she sits down with at dinner, she eats this like really kind of like curved asparagus. It's a really thick asparagus i don't know i i know and then she eats a, a chocolate 
when he, nice. when she gets oh, the box yeah. of chocolates. Is the asparagus curved like the breadstick that Ty holds up and makes a sexual reference to? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> see, see, I, I was thrown off because last night I pulled a double feature of Clueless and Postcards from the Edge. And in Postcards from the Edge, Meryl Streep is eating the entire time. And so remembering which food, which blonde lead of which movie was eating at which time, I, I couldn't remember. Now, there, there are a lot of foods that Cher wants to eat, like the Snickers on the teacher's de- uh, desk. Oh, in yeah. the right. Ooh, Snickers, yeah. I know, and then she, she says how she eats, like, you know, a handful of popcorn I had and, seven, like, three sticks of licorice. Seven M&Ms, three sticks of licorice, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. But she never, if you yeah. never see her eating any of that. That's a good question. Okay, and so the scene where uh, Dion and Cher are watching... Um, Watching the lady teacher, I guess, uh, o- open up her letter. There is a, a sign for a three-on-three basketball tournament. What is the proceeds going to? <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> I'm assuming it's not the Pismo, Dis- Pismo Beach Disaster Relief Fund. Uh, I, I have no idea. I, I do think I know what sign you're talking about, though, but I don't remember. It's a yellow sign, and, and then you're supposed to be watching their their eyes, but like all of a sudden, like, oh, there's a basketball tournament going on. It's uh, life. Love is feeding everyone. <laughs> so, so far, a complete guess is the only point that you've got. I actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> Once you said it, I know what you're referring to. <laughs> okay, where did Elton and Cher stop after the party? Circus liquor. That's correct. One the most romantic destination possible for his seduction, right? Outside the parking lot of a circus liquor at eleven o'clock at night in the in the San Fernando Valley. Very, very suave. Exactly. What is Josh's mother's name? Gail. Hi, Gail. Correct. Is my son there? Uh, what did Cher fail during her driving test? With five things. Oh shit. Uh. Okay, uh, you can't make left-hand turns? No. No? <laughs> because, be, no, because she was, she was asked if she was gonna, if they were gonna go to a place where she could make a left-hand turn. Oh. Um, merge? No, not merging. Um, one, one of them was Carol you Park. almost killed somebody. Uh, you did damage to private property. Yeah, those are two correct. Um... You can't make a right-hand turn? Is was I think That's that was correct. one of them. Yeah. Ter- Terry now is tied with Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Go Terry. I, 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 um, you, you, you can't park. Yeah, that was one. Um, uh, you, you can't change lanes? Yeah, there you go. Hell, hell girl, you can't drive! I just kept on thinking that should have, that was like almost... Part of it was, like, direct quoting Chai McBride and Gone in 60 Seconds. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, those are all... I think you can probably narrow down all the things you do on a driver's test. But You can't yes, negotiate like turns? It. You can't parallel park? Almost like what the, the cop is reading to uh, uh, Fletcher in Liar Liar. You know, I have unpaid parking tickets. Uh, okay, which skater number was Travis? Man, I don't know. Eight? <laughs> and the last question, which just Terry wait. somehow just beat you. Terry's going to beat me in Clueless Trivia? Kind of <laughs> like how Terry beat you in 40-Year-Old Virgin Trivia, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, 
which actor in the movie is also producer of the movie? Uh, Twink Chaplin, who plays uh, Miss Geist. Yeah. I think it's just Kaplan, but yeah. Kaplan, okay. She's not related to Charlie Chaplin. I'm going to give Zach four and a half because you did say parallel parking, and that's what she was doing, but he said just said parking. I mean... I, I just I knew one scene well, and it because it reminded me of another movie. Somehow that was the mo- the most important scene in, in Todd's trivia. However, I can't I still can't tell you what's on the top of or what uh, driving uh, what driving school that Chai McBride dri- uh, works for. I can't tell you that. That was a question on or gone in sixty seconds trivia. But I can list off everything that just happened in Clueless. That was impressive, right. kind of. <laughs> you didn't get yeah. one single food. That was that was kind of a disappointment. Yeah, I don't, honestly, I, don't I said Cheetos that. and thought the thought the carrots were Cheetos. I mean, that's, I mean, uh, I would almost wrong. give Terry a half point for getting the Cheetos because there are Cheetos that Paul Rudd is holding. But well, Terry, you're the knowledgeable one about Clueless. Why don't you tell us about your first experience watching it? All right, you know what? I will. So, uh, so Clueless. Like I said, watch this for the first time last night, um, and it is about as '90s of a movie as you can possibly get. Um, it, it is it is distractingly '90s. <laughs> like it is it is hard to watch this with fresh eyes. Um, I gave it three stars just because I could see the great the 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 quality movie that's in there and kind of some of the smart stuff it was doing. I could also see how this was like the baseline that spawned like every teen high school rom-com for the next five to ten years. Like there are elements of She's All That in here. There are elements of Ten Things I Hate About You in here. You could even go and say there's elements of Mean Girls in here. Um, it is it is what really defined this genre of film for. A considerable portion of um, of movie history, and there were a lot of them that came out in that time. Um, I, I I think it's I, yeah, I think it, it's a good movie. I think it's interesting how many careers that this launched. Um, especially, you know, you got Alicia Silverstone. I still can't I can't believe that is actually Brittany Murphy um, because it is it looks so she looks so different than what she. You know, you, you go ahead, like, what, five years and see 8 Mile and and think that that's the same person? It's ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, three stars. I can see the influence. I can see the quality there. But, my word, is it so seeped in just 90s nostalgia that it's it's hard to get past it to see. It, it's, it's not timeless. I'll, I'll put it that way because of how just seeped in that in that time period it is. So you'll have a lot of good things that uh, aged in this movie. That, oh, mean, yeah. This, There's yeah. so many things that <laughs> aged. <laughs> well, Zach, you're, you're, the, you're the one that loves this film. Tell us all about it. Okay. Um, I think I may have seen Clueless in a theater when it came out. I think I would have only been eight years old. But it's possible. I, I, I know I must have seen Ebert's glowing three-and-a-half-star endorsement of this movie. It was a staple of my life growing up. I had the video cassette. Uh, I loved this movie. Um, I didn't own the DVD until my eight no nineteenth birthday, 
And I wanted to bring up this story because it's an interesting story. So for my 19th birthday, I saw the movie The Lives of Others with my German class, taught by the one and only inimitable J.D. Winnikin. And I was late to my birthday party because the movie ran long and we went to Starbucks and talked about how great it was. And of course, The Lives of Others is a great movie. And uh, my future wife organized a birthday party for me back at the college, but I was late and so she took away all my presents. I was only allowed to have one present back. And that was the DVD of Clueless, the whatever edition that came out uh, in the mid-2000s. So I still have that DVD. I watched it. Uh, it's an interesting DVD. I know we talked about DVDs with 40-year-old version. There's no commentary, no deleted scenes. So it makes it a little ch challenging to come up with extra sort of analysis of this movie. But yes, I think this is a perfect movie. I disagree with Terry. I think it is timeless. I think the 90s references, okay, we, you know, fine. But like the movie is an adaptation of Emma. I don't think anyone wouldn't call Emma timeless. Or uh, And uh, it's uh, the career launcher for so many stars of today. And um, it's a perfect movie. Yes. I will say, I meant to say that too. I absolutely saw that it was an adaptation of Emma as I was watching it. Um, I, I Earlier this year, I saw the new version of Emma that came out. And so the, the story was kind of fresh in my head. And so as I'm watching this, I'm like, this is totally Emma. And if I had watched this for the first time in the 90s, I have a feeling my, my perception of it would be much more similar to yours. But being 25 years removed from the time period it's set in, like I can watch I can watch like 10 things I hate about you and ignore all the all the like the the time specific stuff because I saw it for the first time in that time period. But seeing it for the first time 25 years later makes it hard to ignore all that stuff because yeah you're that far removed from it yeah and it's just an interesting like experience watching it because like you know when i was when i was 10 years old watching this movie like alicia silverstone seemed so adult seemed so mature seemed so sophisticated in, in a in a weird way and now when i watched it she's like a little kid i mean going back to that driving scene like you know those expressions she makes on her face when she's trying to you know get her way out of it like she's like a little kid in this movie it, it, it's a strange phenomenon having a movie be such an impactful part of your life for 25 years you know the majority of my life all but you know seven years of my life so uh yes i hold this movie dear dear and true to my heart um and i will go back and rewatch it and try to take note of the foods that Cher eats because i had never noticed that before and the three-on-three -three basketball tournament and Murray's chain. I, I did notice his braces, though. Yeah, I right. watched this movie yeah, go. maybe 15 years ago for the first time, and I hadn't seen it since. I actually owned the DVD, which I didn't even realize. So, um, <laughs> Is it the whatever edition? No, this is an old DVD. It had a, I don't know. I actually, I don't think it says whatever on it. I don't know. I would have to go look at it. But... I, I mean, I liked it. I, I back then I gave it three stars, and I'm still sort of in, the, in a similar place. Like it, it's it's a charming, funny high school comedy, and it it feels like a lot of other movies of its time. Amy Heckerling is kind of is really good at that kind of movie, and this it probably is her last notable movie that she ever made. I think because I don't I, mean, I don't even know what she's done the last 25 years, but uh, yeah, it, it's cool and, and it is fun to see a, a lot of those uh, actors in, at a younger age, even though they're all in their like mid to late twenties playing high school kids. They Except Alicia do... Silverstone was nineteen. 
So she's still too old to be in high school. True, but well, she's Br- 19. Stacy Dash was 28. 28, yeah. And uh, uh, Paul Rudd was 25, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Paul Rudd was playing a college student, at least. But then again, Paul Rudd is ageless. Let's remember that. He, he does not age. It's true. It's true. True, he does look the exact same. Yeah. <laughs> is Paul Rudd Benjamin Button? I mean... Yes! That's a great uh, conspiracy theory for this movie. Yes, yes. Um, Can we try some recasting? Well, before, just quickly, before we do that, I wanted to talk about Amy Heckerling for a second because one of the interesting phenomena of of this movie is, you know, she directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She was someone who was known as a a director who made movies about uh, teenagers. I've never really been a huge fan of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, if if you think Clueless is dated, just watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like that, I don't think that holds up really at all. Uh, at the same time, I've never really liked anything else that Amy Heckerling ever did. Like, I, I feel like this was her one moment of greatness. And uh, it, it, it was spectacular. But, yeah, I would agree with Todd. Like, I can't think of anything notable that she's done since this movie or really even before this movie besides Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Well, she had the, she did the Clueless TV show, right? Wasn't was she the creator of that? That's true. I want to talk about that, by the way, because I actually watched a few episodes of that in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I have never seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'll just throw that out there. You're not I missing much. I think Fast much. Times at Ridgemont High actually holds up really well. That's a, I think it's kind of a great movie. Well, no shit, because you know Jennifer Jason Lee and Sean Penn are in it, but it's not that great. <laughs> well, and I, I think it also, it's Nicholas not the Cage time... Nicholas in it, too, actually. Yeah, Nicholas Cage, too. It's not the time we grew up in. And Judge Reinhold. I, I, I think that's part of it, where, like, Clueless, that was, that was like, I mean, when this came out, I was 10. This, is, this was, like, right in my, you know, the start of my formative years. So I remember when this came out, because I remember when everyone was talking like they were in this movie, where going back and watching something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it feels much more almost period piece or retro than something that was a part of the culture I was in. So okay. Amy Eckerling's other movies, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was her first movie. Then she did Johnny Dangerously, National Lampoon's European Vacation, Look Who's Talking, Look Who's Talking 2, then Clueless, then some movie called Loser, I Could Never Be Your Woman, and Vamps With Paul in Rudd. 2012. <laughs> what? The, Look who's talking, the first two Look Who's Talking movies were alright. Especially the first one. But, I mean, I'm just saying, that's not exactly a murderer's row of, uh... No. Of films the last 35 years. But she was a director, she was, you know, one of the few uh, women directors who could actually make uh, movies that, you know, the male-dominated patriarchal system of Hollywood production, uh, you know, she uh, she made uh, moderate-budget movies that made a lot of money, like Look Who's Talking, like Clueless, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Penny Marshall was probably the only other woman, uh, you know, female director in the 90s that would have been hired for projects like that good point all right well let's get into this let's do some recasting here so uh let's see here we're gonna start with share the lead alicia silverstone was the original share uh zach who is your new share uh, okay, you know, this is a really tough one because uh, how, you know, I wa- like I said, I watched the, the TV series of uh, Clueless. The actress who plays Cher is terrible. I think her name is Rachel Blanchard or something like that. 
you know, underscores how impossible it would be to recast anyone. Um, the only person I can really think of today that I would, I would possibly consider would be like Elle Fanning, because I think Elle Fanning has that kind of innocence that's really sweet and cute, but she's also, you know, she's a, she's a blonde, she's good looking. Um, I think that the, 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 you know, uh, what Amy Herkeling said is, um, all about Cher is that all audiences have to like her, whether you're a guy or a girl and everyone likes Cher. And I think everyone likes Elle Fanning. Um, I, I thought about saying Elle Fanning and, but after watching, we're, we're about halfway through the first season of the great on Hulu with, uh, where she plays Catherine the great. And after watching that, I can't see her doing something like this. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to see that after, after, um, watching her basically in the favorite part two. Um, cause that's basically what the great is. Uh, this was a hard one for me to recast simply because it feels like, I mean, this this was definitely like discovery mode for for this movie. Like this took Alicia Silverstone from a nobody to like Hollywood stardom, and so to find someone that would fit that was hard. And I didn't even try. Uh, I went with Chloe Grace Moretz, um, because I I think. She's a great actress. Um, she's got the looks to pull off uh, the a part like this as the most popular kid in school. Again, no matter who you you're picking, it's it's trending on the a little too uh, little too old side. But that's who I'm going with. Todd, how about you? Yeah, I, I mean I feel the same way. It's it's hard to actually find people that would actually be the right age. You'd be pretty much be like casting your own new like Girl Meets World or something like that. But right, I just I, wanted to use, like, every character from Girl Meets World and cast that and just go with it. So, But I went with Catherine Langford, who is uh, the main character in the first season of 13 Reasons Why. And uh, she is similarly, she's got a pretty face. She's kind of innocent, but also manipulative. And I, I feel like she could she could do it. She's not blonde, but, I mean, that doesn't matter that much. All right. It's not All bad. Right. Okay, moving on to Dion, played both in the movie and the TV series by Stacey Dash. Um, Zach, who do you have as the new Dion? Well, originally I thought about Zendaya as uh, Dion, and then there was a side of me that almost, I almost wanted to put Zendaya as Cher, because if you watch Alicia Silverstone in interviews, and this is, a, I think, a really important thing, Alicia Silverstone is nothing like Cher. She's very, in, in, when she did interviews for the movie, she's like very kind of withdrawn, very introverted. Uh, someone who's not interested in fashion. If you watch her interviews, her voice timbre is almost like a whole octave lower. And that's almost the way I feel about Zendaya a little bit. Um, you know, Zendaya does not necessarily like, you don't think of like energetic, preppy sort of mode, but it would be interesting to see her play uh, Cher. Anyway, I didn't cast Zendaya. I didn't cast her as uh, Dion either, but I think she's just an interesting actress. I went with Willow Smith, the daughter of Will Smith. I do think that's an interesting point, though. I, I, Zendaya as, as Cher would have been really interesting. But her characters are usually really aloof, 
Well, I mean, I don't... Well, I, but, but look at Alicia Silverstone. So, so I wanted to amend something that Terry said. Sure, uh, Alicia Silverstone was not a nobody in 1995. She was in the Aerosmith videos and in the movie The Crush, whereas this sort of, um, you know, uh, Amy Fisher-type Lolita character who was very dark and twisted. And uh, I feel like Zendaya has that kind of range. So in a way, I almost want to cast Zendaya as Cher. However, I feel like Cher's whiteness is somewhat important to the movie. So I don't know. I wouldn't want to take that away necessarily yeah you, you kind of feel like Cher has to be a blonde bombshell yes like that's that, that's kind of a requirement for the role yes um and uh yeah okay uh my um my Dion I went with I I had a tough time finding someone but I thought I found someone that would have been that would be really interesting um and I've actually never... Oh, no, I have. Oh, that's interesting. But um, uh, I went with Amanda Stenberg, who is the lead in the movie The Hate You Give, which I actually never saw. But um, but she's, she's the right rude. age. She's got the right look. Um, I think I think she would... Um, she'd be able to pull it off. She was also Rue in The Hunger Games. That's a good pick. Yes, that's what I just saw. Um, I, that's why I was like, oh, hey, I have seen her in something, because she was ruining the Hunger Games, but obviously she's older now. Alright, I went with Naomi Scott, who has played a lot of these kinds of characters recently. She was in, like, the, the Power Rangers movie, and she was in, uh, the, uh, Charlie's Angels movie. I, uh, she, I mean, I, that lady was really way too old to play a high school kid, and I'm She was I'm also sure Princess she, Jasmine. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so she's kind of blowing up right now, apparently. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that, that was what, I mean, I, I couldn't really find a good one. But she reminded me a lot of Angela in Boy Meets World. Oh, yeah, that's a good call. Like, Stacey Dash could have definitely played Angela in Boy Meets World. And vice versa. Okay. Uh, next is Ty. Originally brought to us by Brittany Murphy. Uh, Zach, who do you got? All right, so I did something a little meta here, if, if that's all right. So seven years ago, uh, for our uh, blog, I wrote the, the one blog entry that I think holds up really well, which is that I basically recast the whole uh, movie of Clueless as characters from Breaking Bad. I called it Cluelessly Breaking Bad. So I think for the rest of this segment, I'm going to go back to that blog entry. And I'm going to do it conveniently here because I could never come up with Breaking Bad characters that were also Cher and Dion. Um, but I decided to cast as my Ty, Jane Margolis, because, and I'll read a little bit of what I said. Jay and, Jane and Ty both love the bad boy, hence their affinity for rolling with the homies. So naturally, they are both powerfully attracted to uh, Jesse and Travis. And for a little while, it appears that they both improved their ever tortured lives of their boyfriends um but the sad reality is that their happiness is ephemeral as lethal drug overdoses cut their relationships short although ty did not od but Brittany murphy did that may have been a little too soon <laughs> I, I was wondering how long it was going to take for that that uh, blog post to come up thank you i i wanted to bring it up any any possible time i could so yes i need to talk about it uh all right. Well, uh, well, my tie. I actually, I, I'm actually quite proud of this one. I thought this was a good one. My tie is uh, Emma Kenny, who is most known as Debbie Gallagher from Shameless, the redhead uh, sister. 
Um, I think she's also in some episodes of the the Connors. Yeah, she's also in the Connors. Um, she is. Uh, she's got the right look, kind of the, kind of the the homey look, but um, with the makeover can and has the personality to pull pull off something like that. I think it would be pretty good. Okay, I went with. Uh, well, I have two options. One of them is Lorelai Linklater for Terry's sake. I think she would actually fit in that role really well. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Thank you. <laughs> but, Five worst performances in a four-star movie. Uh, but I, I said Nicole Bloom, who I've seen her in a couple things, most notably like uh, the NBC show Superstore. She she has that really off kind of personality when, when put next to everybody else, and it, I think it really fits here, and, and again, I think she's really too, way too old, but she look, she looks and sounds like she could still be in high school, so I went with that, I, I went that direction. See, I feel like Katherine Langford would be a really interesting tie. You got the casting a little bit backwards there. Like, she, I think she could nail tie. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could see that too. I think the other see, girl, the, the one, the one girl that that Clay actually likes in 13 Reasons Why, the other girl, I think she could be a good tie also. What was her name? I don't remember what her name was. The One in the poetry see, class. See, for me looking at this, uh, this the those three leads, I was having so much trouble because there, there were a lot of those younger actresses whose names I know, but I don't really know them. I haven't really seen them anything. Like... Mackenzie Foy was one that was like, ooh, that's an up-and-coming young actress who's like 18, 19, that would be good. I haven't seen her in anything, so I don't know what kind of personality she actually has. That's what made it kind of tough and, and ended up making me pick people closer to like... Well, I think Amanda Stenberg and Emmy Kenny are are still kind of late teens, early 20s, but Chloe Grace is like 24 now, so... Okay. Josh, brought to us by Benjamin Button himself, Paul Rudd. Uh, Zach, who do you got? All right, I had him uh, as being played by Gail Bedecker. I said Gail and Josh are both environmentally conscious, self-described nerds who would rather curl up with a brook by Walt Whitman or Nietzsche than indulge in the lavish lifestyles of crystal meth or dealing with criminal law. Uh, both love coffee. Josh is told by his ex-sister you don't want to be the only one at the coffee house without chin pubes. And both are eager to learn from their beloved protégés, Walter White and Mel Horowitz. But their most important similarity, their less-than-stellar dancing skills. Josh dances with Ty so she won't feel bad uh, after doing this, which is a hyperlink to something. And while Gil's dancing skills have already been immortalized forever, and Gail gives me a toothache. Man, I had fun writing that. <laughs> that is... Wow. Wow. Gail Bedecker. Well, the, like, the one lasting thing of him in Breaking Bad is his... Uh, the coffee contraption he made that that was just mm -hmm. and his and his dancing skills i don't remember what well, song yeah. he was dancing to but yeah i, remember I don't that. know something of his own creation <laughs> i think quite possibly uh okay <laughs> my josh i i once i saw this name i think it was the only one i could go with my josh is ansel elgort and uh, i think he's perfect he's perfect right age right Right look, right demeanor, right personality. I mean, is can we just say Ansel Elgort is the new Paul Rudd? Like in twenty five years, he's gonna be playing Ant Man and look exactly the same. Could be. 
I was thinking the one guy from Girl Meets World, but he kind of sucks as an actor, so I didn't go with him. He's horrible. He's horrible. <laughs> but he's got the right personality. He's he's in a show my wife watches. Uh, what is it? American Housewife. He's in that show now. So is I Diedrich went... Bader. Diedrich Bader is the husband in that show. Anyways, continue. I went with <laughs> Liam James, who I first saw as uh, Sarah Lyndon's son in The Killing, but since he he got his own movie actually at one point, uh, the the way way back, uh, he's kind of he's kind of got that that really kind of too cool for school kind of feel to him, and I, I feel like that really it is important for a Josh character and. I think he's similar to the right age, kind of. I don't know. I don't actually know how old he is, but he he probably still looks like he could still be in high school. So we're talking The Way Way Back, not the 2020 film The Way Back or the 2010 <laughs> film The Way Back, but the one that came somewhere in between called The Way Way Back. Yeah, the one by Oscar winners Nat Faxon and Jim Rash. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we exhausted yeah, okay. that joke three months ago, Terry. We, we did, we did. But it's still good. It's still good. <laughs> Classic We're in quarantine. Dies. I can recycle jokes. <laughs> All right. Uh, next, let's go to uh, let's go to Mr. Hall next. Mr. Hall, originally brought to us by the iconic Wallace Shawn, who is, I mean, he he is who he is. There's there's really no replacing him. But Zach, who from Breaking Bad is uh, is Mr. Hall? Well, gee, Terry, that's a tough question now, isn't it? Um, this is what inspired this excellent blog post, and uh, that was the uncanny parallels between Mr. Wendell Hall and Mr. Walter White. Both are middle-aged, unhappy, bald high school teachers. Both of them fail to motivate their students in spite of their enthusiasm about the subjects they teach, like chemistry and speech. Neither of them earn significant sums of money. Mr. White has to earn uh, work a second job at a car wash, and Mr. Hall earns mi- minor ducats at a thankless job. In spite of their middle-aged angst and decided lack of masculinity, both are fundamentally low-key, family-oriented men. This doesn't change the fact that they both need a good, healthy boink fest. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. <laughs> I, I don't know if I don't know if, uh, if Mr. Hall is uh, making crystal meth on the side, though. Well, we it, it wouldn't be himself. He would need a protege and an unexpected relationship with oh. a pupil who could do it. Oh. But that is another uh, character in, that we will address later. Dare, dare I say, Mr. Hall, doing that would be inconceivable. Anyways, I had, I had to. I had to. All right. Um, my Mr. Hall, uh, th- this was kind of fun because I mean he's he's such a great comedy guy in this. I mean he's he gets so many laughs. So I was looking at like comedy guys who would be able to fit in this role. Um, I went with Steve Zahn. Um, I thought he would be an interesting one, around the same age, kind of that middle aged guy now, um, but also be able to kind of be that that straight man to all the chaos that's happening in the classroom and make it funny. Um, that, that, yeah, that's what I went with. Steve's on rarely ever plays a straight man. (laughs) Except national security. He actually would have been a great Travis in 1995. (laughs) Steve's on also did movies with Brittany Murphy and Alicia Silverstone. Interestingly enough. Oh, that that is interesting. I don't see it. Terry. 
That gets and, and an F. By the way, I totally thought that he he was the backup Travis too. As soon as I said that, I'm like, man. And he would have been a great Travis. I mean, it That's was just a true. year later that we discovered Steve Zahn as the as the uh, what was he, the, the bass player in it or no the guitar player in that thing you do. Yeah. That's the bright casting Terry. He should have been the alternate to uh, Brecken Meyer. Yeah. Actually, no. He was the drummer. He was the drummer that broke his arm. That's right. That's why Shades had to join. Okay. All right. Uh, Todd, so Mr. I Hall. went with. A comedy actor who I've seen only in like one movie, and I and it's one of my favorite movies. But since then, all he's done is voice work, and I feel like obviously Wallace Shawn's best work ever is his Toy Story work. So I went with David Herman, who is probably most known as being Michael Bolton from the uh, Office Space, and because <laughs> I want to see what he I want to see what he looks like now because I haven't seen him in like you know twenty years, and uh, he could he could totally have that teacher vibe. I but. Who knows? Wallace Shawn, like Brittany Murphy, very uh, irreplaceable because their voices are just so different than everybody else's. Part of me wanted to cast uh, Miles Raymond. Not Paul Giamatti, but Miles Raymond in this role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go to Mel. Mel uh, is Cher's father. Mel is played by Dan Hedaya. Uh... Most know I I I'll tell you right now before watching this I remember him most as being the uh, the uh, son to the owner of the Cubs in Rookie of the Year. Um, that's how I know Dan Hedaya. But uh, here he is as Mel Horowitz, Cher's uh, father, Zach. What do we got? Hmm, a, a lawyer, an attorney. Hmm, I wonder in the Breaking Bad universe where this might go. <laughs> I think there's a lawyer named Saul Goodman uh, who has some uncanny parallels, and I even wrote about it. I said, Mr. White and Mr. Hall and Travis and Jesse need solid legal expertise to get their drug operations out of sticky situations with authorities. Enter Saul, better call Saul Goodman, and Mel, get out of my chair, Horowitz. Both are <laughs> lawyers who have no hesitation in getting and going all out for their clients, whether this means hiding drug money behind the walls of their office or pulling an all-nighter at their house with a quick subway break. There are minor differences. Saul advises clients to avoid IRS scrutiny by investing in paintball arenas and nail salons, while Mel indulges in his in, uh, indulges his own money in luxurious homes dating back to 1972 and Klaus von Oldenburg sculptures. Yeah, that, that's all I got. Very nice. Very nice. Slipping jam. Um, I, I've got I've got two people here for Mel. Uh, I mean, finding finding just a like a greasy attorney was kind of hard to find out of out of some people. So uh, I went with uh, the the my first thought was Will Arnett. I thought could have been interesting as being the because he's he's like the the rough exterior and and just the the smart talking guy that always has a great one liner for every time he enters a room. But also he could he's he's you know got that lawyer side to him too, so that's one. And the other one, which it gets to something we'll talk about a little later. I mean, this is the perfect spot for Nicolas Cage, right? <laughs> I like it. I mean that that's I I that's that's who I had once I realized that we were going to talk about that. I'm like, well, uh, obviously he's Mel, and I couldn't think of anybody else after that. So. 
Those are All terrible right. picks. Terrible. <laughs> Can't you see Will Arnett walking in the... Get out of my chair. I'm Batman. Anyways. <laughs> All right, Todd. Um, I went with Matt Ross, who is not only... He's a writer-director of uh, Captain Fantastic, but he's probably most known from Silicon Valley playing Gavin Belson. And I, he fits more of the father role of Mel than he does the actual lawyer role. But although I do feel like he could do that as well. I mean, I, I was just kept picturing him as the father and in, in those conversations. You know, like, I'm, I'm so proud of you, you know, even if... Uh, I'm, I'm more proud of you now, even if there were real grades or whatever he says. Like, I, I feel like I, I could hear him delivering those lines. So I, I couldn't get that out of my head. And it, I mean, Dan Hedaya, it kind of owns those roles in that era so it's kind of hard i could also hear will arnett giving those lines i can't you i I could totally hear it you've never seen him in arrested development you would never say that so do you guys know who played Cher's father in the tv series of clueless i think i just looked this up it's michael lerner isn't it michael lerner and talk about a total miscasting uh He is terrible in in the series. I think they did replace him after season one, but um, I cannot think of a of a worse actor. Um, yeah, I think the only requirement to play Mel Horowitz is that you have to look like you're a gangster, which I don't think Will Arnett does. But well, certainly more than Michael Lerner. Neither does Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> True. All right, I think we got one more we're doing. Murray? Is that our last one? Yeah. All right, so Murray, another one brought to us in the movie and the TV show uh, by the same actor, and that was Donald Faison. Uh, Zach, what do we got? Well, I cast uh, both Murray and Lawrence as Skinny Pete and Badger, and I said, Skinny Pete and Badger are (laughs) ambiguously close BFFs who also work as drug dealers and part-time friends to Jesse Pinkman. Murray and Lawrence are ambiguously close BFFs who shave each other's heads and cause Murray's relationship with Dion to be like that Ike and Tina Turner movie. Who is Lawrence? Lawrence is the other... Is that, he's the guy that's shaving, that's shaving his, his, his head. head. Is that okay? So is that the brother in uh, uh, Jerry Maguire? Because like when when Murray keeps saying like I'm just keeping it real, you know, whatever. I was like that. That's exactly what the brother says, and I felt like the other guy looked like the brother. Isn't the brother in Jerry Maguire Ares Spears? I have no idea. I think it is. <laughs> he was like a. He, he ended up on like Mad TV. Okay. So I could yeah. be wrong. Maybe, maybe that was. You're wrong. I'm looking at it right now. You're wrong. You're wrong. In the TV show uh, Clueless, they changed his name to Sean, by the way, for no reason. Other than the actor's name is Sean. Maybe that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, so uh, for for Murray, um, I went with. Uh, so so part of what I was thinking when I when I was looking at Murray, I'm like, man. Donald Faison looks so old as to be so much too old to be a high schooler. And then I remembered that five years later he played a high schooler again in remember the Titans. Just a junior so, in high school too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so to say he looks too old and clueless is ridiculous. If we also then go to remember the Titans, but also we were supposed to believe that Ethan Supley was a high schooler and remember the Titans too. Um, 
my my Murray, I went with Tyrell Jackson Williams, who uh, I think he was in Everybody Hates Chris, but I most know him as uh, the sound engineer for uh, one Jim Brockmeyer in the TV show Brockmeyer with Hank Azaria. Um, he's hilarious, and he's he's awesome, and he would be great in in anything he's in. So. I went with uh, an actor from The Way Back, which is everyone's favorite point guard, Brandon Wilson. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not really sure why there, there was not. It was, I mean, it was not a great casting choice, but I could see it happening. And he does still kind of look like he could be in high school because he did was in a high school movie this year. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, since uh, since or Zach, do you have any others that you want to mention off your uh, Breaking Bad list? Yes, I said that uh, Jesse Pink or Travis Birkenstock would be played by Jesse Pinkman. Miss Geist would be Skylar White because, of course, by the end of Clueless, she's married to uh, Mr. Hall slash Mr. White. Um, I also said that uh, Hank Schrader has some uncanny similarities with the rude DMV guy. And uh, I also said that Amber would be Wendy the crack whore at the motel. And uh, Elton would be Tuco Salamanca, I guess because they're both assholes and they're both rich. And um, the guy who robs Cher is like Bogdan the car wash owner because he essentially robs Walter White because he asks such a high uh, price for uh, his uh, car wash. I guess that's a robbery. I don't know. I was trying to be funny. I said that the uh, Lucy, the El Salvadorian maid, would be played by the Honduran woman at the meth lab. That's not funny. And the, <laughs> the, um, the rude lawyer in suspenders who accuses Josh of chasing uh, Cher would be played by Ted Beneke. And the mall <laughs> would be played by Los Poyos Hermanos. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. Too, too much time on my hands. I don't know. The yes. maid, that'd be more like... Uh like Saul's uh Saul's uh, uh secretary what's her name secretary. oh yes Francesca Fra- Francesca yeah, yeah yeah there you go uh all right well since I've already said mine let's skip ahead to who would Nicolas Cage play <laughs> well I I mean I again it's hard to get him now into this movie but I said he could like I feel like most Easily fits into like if he was in nineteen eighties he could he could have been a really good Elton or Travis, but he could also be Mister Hall. Um, I, I think he's Mel. Zach, how about you? I went with the lead singer of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones um, when he's singing about someday da 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 oh 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 yeah man yeah yeah you can see that with the spiky hair and the the strange kind of body movements um yeah that band is also similar to like the band at the end of like the hangover i don't know i I kept thinking that i I kept thinking he was gonna like start dropping f-bombs in his songs and stuff like that but i don't know i think it's a hangover to the hangover step brothers one of those like bad comedies that everyone loves Okay, well, uh, how about uh, Highest War? Highest War performance. Todd, you're first on this one. I said Brittany Murphy because she shows up and she feels different than everybody else and her raspy voice is just kind of irreplaceable. She looks the part of a drug addict but also has it like wide-eyed exuberance that 
like is I don't know. It makes her different than every other character, and I almost didn't want to recast the part because she's she was perfect then, and she still is. And at the uh, that same year, she actually was in two episodes of Boy Meets World as Trini, who was a uh, uh, Topanga's best friend, and she has a really similar part in that. And I, I feel like that niche character in those two things. Yeah, I don't know. I would never replace that. I know who you're talking about. Oh my word, that's Brittany Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. It was almost she almost had like a makeover type uh, uh, plot line too, and she ends up going out with Corey for some reason. I don't. It was. Yeah. I yeah. Have go, I have to go rewatch that. It, it, very similar things. Also, 1995, like I said. Huh. That's crazy. Um. Yeah. You're. You're right. She's got this. This edge yet innocence. It's so weird. And, and yet it fits, and and you're right. It's hard to see anybody else being able to do that. Zach, who's who's your highest war? I mean, this is a great category, because there's absolutely no wrong answer. Uh, I, I think all of this cast is irreplaceable. I think I would have to go with Dan Hedaya as Mel Horowitz for some of the reasons we've already talked about. I couldn't see another actor in that role. That is the perfect, perfect, and most iconic Dan Hedaya role. He later went on to play Richard Nixon in Dick, and... Uh, uh, but this is the this is the role that uh, is perfect for him. I, I almost sort of think he's like a male version of Judge Judy. And um, if you listen to Amy Heckerling in interviews, she has like almost the same Bronx accent as he does. He has a strange, mysterious past, and he has a forty-five and a shovel, and we can believe it. And uh, yeah, Dan Hedaya, man, is awesome in this movie. I can I, whenever I see him, I only think of him in this movie. This is uh, for me, it's his most iconic role. I, I don't know. I always I would think of Blood Simple, and but then I also think of the Usual Suspects, but I don't know. Rookie of the Year. That's what I think of. Well, yeah, he Rookie is... of the Year too. <laughs> Look, Ed Harris was always going to win my Best Supporting Actor in 1995, but a part of me really thinks Dan Hedaya may have given a better performance. That is uh, a hot uh, take. That that's if by hot take you mean wrong take, then yes. You are correct. <laughs> Ed Harris as Mel Horowitz. That is something I could go with. That's not bad casting. He's too old now. I can't but, see that at Ed, all. He's Ed too Harris old now. as Gene Krantz as Mel Horowitz. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Paul Rudd uh, because I mean this is about as Paul Rudd of a role as possible. He is somehow able to take this guy that really could have easily come off as a pretentious douchebag and make him one of the most likable characters in the entire movie. Uh, and it's all because it's Paul Rudd. He has this instant likability about him and, um, and something that just makes you just enjoy every moment he's on screen. And, and that, I mean, that's the case in everything he's done, whether it's this, whether it's when he finally pops up in the last season of Friends, whether it's, it's Anchorman, 40 year old virgin going into the MCU, he just brightens up every scene he's in just simply by being there. And, and that's, that's so hard to do. And he is perfect at it. He pretty much grows up to be Mike in Friends. Like this character is Paul Rudd pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean crap bag? Yeah. If you forget it, just think of a bag of crap. 
Exactly. All right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, worst performance. Going to the other side. I'll go first on this one. And I'm going to say worst performance is uh, Eliza Donovan as Amber. Um, I think of all the of all the main characters, and I mean, there's like the, a pretty good ensemble cast here, but of all of them, she's the one that is the most a cliche of everything that is that was wrong with the '90s. <laughs> she's like the, she's like the one that's reminding you in this entire movie that this is the '90s, and in every word that she says, every outfit she wears. Uh, every snarky remark they make about her. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily her fault or if it's just the way that the part is written. That's usually what it ends up being is worst part. And, um, I think this is probably the worst written part and because she really has nothing to work with, but yeah, she's my, she's my worst performance. Uh, Todd, you're next. I went with Susan Mohoon as Heather, who is, uh, josh's like girlfriend i guess yeah whatever she has like one scene and her call yeah it's a good one um she's just regurgitating her lines and i the the scene the scene like should have been funny but instead it's just kind of lame i um there aren't really any bad performances because all the characters are kind of wacky and caricatures but hers i just feel like she could have i mean i I don't know they could have gone on the street and found somebody that would have been more committed to the part than that one scene that that girl had I don't know who she Not is. Not bad. Not bad. Zach, yeah. how are you? Todd stole mine. I was going to go with Heather, too. He did, the, the man does, can't even make a, a feckin' point. And she hasn't even seen um, the Mel Gibson version of Hamlet. Shame on her. She misquotes the bard. Uh, you know, there's no bad performance in this movie. I don't know. It's, it, it, it's, it's really hard. I can't, I can't think of anyone. I'm going to go with Beavis and Butthead. They give the worst performance in the movie from season two. Do you know the now, episode? If it, if that, it had been season one, Beavis and Butthead. Well, of course. Then, yeah. Then it would have been different. Season one only had like season three episodes. <laughs> Do you know the episode that they were watching? I don't know what it's called. <laughs> All right. Did you also recognize the Ren and Stimpy episode? I was not that religious a Ren and Stimpy watcher at the time. See, I, I watched Ren and Stimpy more than Beavis and Butthead. I can't say I remember the episode, but um, when Ren and Stimpy kind of jumped the shark and did their their episode of Don't Whiz on the Electric Fence, that's when my mom intervened, and we I was not allowed to watch that anymore. Got a little too inappropriate. But it was fun while it lasted. My favorite Nickelodeon show, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think... They, they don't give enough information to figure out what season of Ren and Stimpy it was, since pretty much in every episode you hear Ren say, You idiot! So, and that's all you get, so. Oh, that was a good imitation. <laughs> Stimpy, you idiot! Uh, Alright. We, uh, we, we need an origin story with Seth Rogen as Stimpy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that ba- Ren and Stimpy is basically Timon and Pumbaa, right? It's like yeah, the PG-13 Timon and Pumbaa. No, yeah. And Seth Rogen was Pumbaa in the remake, so... That wouldn't be bad. Remake Ren and Stimpy with Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen. <laughs> Just like they did I'd with Lion it. King. I would totally watch that. Okay. <laughs> Make it R-rated, though, please. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, the uh, Big Tim Favorite Minor Character Award. Zach, who are you going with? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, this is just a treasure trove of great minor characters throughout this movie. Um, uh, where where do you begin with this movie? I, I do not know. I think maybe I would go with Miss Stoger, um, the gym teacher, who, as Cher uh, aptly points out, is same-sex oriented. Um and uh, she's able to throw that that uh, that wad of paper into the trash during the lunch break, and she's a bride. She's at the wedding. She's not a bridesmaid at the wedding, but she gets fierce when she is trying to fight for that bouquet. Um, and uh, she does not care about balls flying in people's faces. So yeah, I want to know more about Miss Stoger. Nice. She has Ms. a Stoger. Uh, a very distinct similarity to Marla Hooch. They, they really Marla Hooch. Smaller eyes, Hooch. but other than that, they could have been the same actor. I kept thinking it was. That's not bad. That's not bad. Um, this was possibly the easiest one for me to to do because by far my favorite minor character is the one and only Travis Birkenstock, brought to you by Breckenmeyer. I love that character. It is it is just awesome. First off, it's Breckenmeyer, which just makes it amazing. Um, and, uh, I, I love that Breckenmeyer still to this day, his, uh, his profile picture on IMDb is from Franklin and Bash. I just have to throw that out there. Um, but the thing that I kept on thinking as I was watching this is Breckenmeyer throughout this entire movie is doing an impersonation of, uh, Elias Kataeus's Casey Jones from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Uh, that's all I could think of is he was just doing Casey Jones um, he, he's, he just put a smile on my face every time he was on the screen. He, he's just awesome. Awesome. I love that character. So he's a he's skater perfect. instead of a hockey player. Yeah, he's a skater instead of a hockey player. Exactly. <laughs> so do you know who Brecken Myers said he influ- what actually influenced his performance? What no. he, he said was, obviously, Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but he also right. said um, Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Parenthood. So just basically Keanu Reeves? Yeah, basically Keanu Reeves. Have you seen the trailer for the new Bill and Ted? Keanu Reeves looks so old and awkward. It's it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that. He kind of is old. Well, yeah. But anyways, okay. All right, Todd. Uh, well, my favorite minor character is Amber. Because I, I feel like <laughs> when she looks around, like her disdain for everything i can really relate to that and it also like the look on her face when Cher is talking about the statue of liberty and the garden party and stuff i mean it was just priceless like i you could see everything she wanted to say just by the look on her face that's why she's like i she had like no words to even say because she didn't have to she already said it with her face she jumps off the screen in every scene that she's in i wish she had more lines she's yeah she's definitely i think she's my favorite character overall see this is a problem you, you, y'all did, like, I thought, okay, I thought when we met Big Tim, I thought, like, little characters. So, I, I didn't think main cast like that. Like, to me, Travis is part of the main cast. If I had to Amber's go, like... not main cast. She's, I, like, I mean, listed I, fifth in the IMDb Yeah, but page. I, I, bet, I bet your character had more lines than Amber. Well, can I just say my favorite character, then, who's not Cher, 
is yes. I, so I'll maybe redo it. I'm sorry, uh, Murray. I mean, obviously, Donald Faison in this movie is awesome. Like, if we're calling you know Murray a minor character, he's the best minor character in this movie. Like every scene he's in, he he lights it up. And if if there was to be a spinoff of Clueless based on any character, it wouldn't be sure. It'd have to be Murray. Also, the second straight deep dive we've done with Paul Rudd, and also the second straight deep dive where uh, a gay person is referred to as a Streisand. <laughs> well, this one's a little different because he's a Streisand ticket holding friend of Dorothy, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good point. I, I retract my previous statement. <laughs> Uh yeah. Okay. Um those are all good. Okay. Uh we did this one last time. I want to do it again because I, I think it it's good. Best scene. Best scene. Um let's see here. Who who just I, I, I think it's is it my turn to go first? I think it's my turn to go first. Um and because I, I actually prepared for this one, so I'll I'll, I'll go first. My bet my favorite scene was definitely um and again it's going to my favorite character travis's uh acceptance speech for having the most yes. tardies that is nice. that was such a good scene and uh, just impromptu get up there and to, to give this say i mean the dude is smart <laughs> and, and but no one gives him any credit for it um yeah and uh and special shout out to those egg mcmuffins for uh for helping make him tardy that, that, that was the best scene. That was the best moment of the movie. Todd, what do you think? Well, I, I like the the, int- the first scene in the classroom where we first get to see Mr. Hall and, you know, uh, Travis is trying to jump out the window after getting his test score. Mm. Like, that, that whole sequence. I mean, that's a that's a great scene. And, and Will the suicide with, like, attempts please wait, wait until the end of first hour? <laughs> no, so no, the next period. They start, next, yeah, period. next period. Yeah, which is, yeah, is low-key the best line. <laughs> but I, And it all obviously starts with my, my favorite minor character, and, you know, in, in that debate. It's, it's a great scene. And that I watched that scene twice, actually. So that's got to be neat, I guess. Nice. All right, Zach, how about you? Yeah, Travis' acceptance speech is a great is a great pick. And uh, when I was a kid, I think my favorite scene was when Cher gets mugged at gunpoint. I will totally shoot you in the head. But watching it today, I would have to agree. Amy Heckerling said this was her fam- favorite scene in the movie. I would agree with Amy Heckerling. Clearly, it is when they get on the freeway, okay? That, <laughs> that scene, first of all, it has some truth to it because there always is something a little terrifying when you're like 16 years old and learning how to drive when you get on the freeway for the first time. So that, I think, has a lot of truth to it. But like, think about all that happens in that scene. I mean, we find out that Christian is gay we find out that, that that Dion and Murray take their relationship to the whole next level, and they almost die. I, a lot of shit happens in that scene. It's a great sequence full of um, a lot of crazy stuff happening. And um, yeah, woman, I can't, I, you know, you can't drive for shit. In that scene, Alicia Silverstone totally sounds like Joey Lauren Adams, too. She's like, I feel like such a bonehead. Like, it sounds exactly like Joey Lauren Adams does in Dazed, Confused, and in Liar, or not, uh, Big Daddy. Like, I, 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 that, I, I watched, I, I kept rewinding. I was like, wait, what does that remind me of? And yeah, she, she could have easily been Joey Lauren Adams at the time. 
Murray's, Murray's line that he's a disco dancing Oscar Wilde reading Streisand ticket hold in front of Dorothy I think it's funnier than any of the uh, Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd scenes in uh, 40 Year Old Virgin just that line alone that line alone I love how your favorite scene in this movie is the complete foil to your other favorite 1995 movie where all they do is go fast on the freeway that's true it's a 1994 movie but I hear what oh, you're 1994. saying oh 1994 yeah dang it I thought uh, I had cons- it there's Lord a conspiracy Lord theory there <laughs> there is there is I mean the way the way that semi truck was coming up behind I thought there was a bomb on board <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, biggest stick man. Uh, I think, uh, Todd, it's your turn. Biggest stick man. It has to be Elton, right? Yeah. Like he, he's it like does. this, like, hybrid between Sean Hunter and Harley Kiner or something like that. He doesn't even need to say anything. He's just, like, cool. And, uh, I mean, he hops from one girl to the next. He drives a freaking Camaro. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's Elton. There was no other option. Like, I mean, he's the biggest one. There could be other stickmen, but he's number one. I, I love how you compare everything in this movie to Boy Meets World. There is that, a lot that of... It's just amazing. Yeah, a lot of parallels. I can see it. <laughs> All right, Zach, how about you? I think there are quite a bit of stickmen in this movie. I'm going to go low-key stickman because I can't entirely, uh, you know, s- refute uh, Elton. I think that's a good pick. I think Josh is a quiet stickman in this movie because he does have a girlfriend played by Heather or at least, you know, some sort of f- buddy that he hooks up with, even though she doesn't know Hamlet. And uh, Cher talks about how all the girls at the East Coast schools aren't at all particular. So that could I- increase his, his uh, stickman uh, dynasty. And at the end of the movie... He is with Cher. So, I mean, he's with two women minimum in this movie. Elton doesn't even get with one. So, I feel like points go to uh, to uh, Mr. Paul Rudd and his ageless, beautiful face. Hard to call Cher a woman if she's only 16. And Same his ex, ex-stepsister, <laughs> yeah. We could talk about that, too. <laughs> Duh, this is California, not Kentucky. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to give my LVP to Kentucky, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the only one of us who's been there, so you That's speak from experience. That's what I was going to say. That's true. Uh, I, I honestly can't think of anybody else other than Elton to say for Biggest Stick Man, so I'm going to just echo echo that. By the way, it took me a while. I was watching, like, who is that? I know I know that face. And then I looked it up to find out it was Jeremy Sisto. And uh, it just made me happy to know that it was a face I actually knew and not just thinking it was someone I might know. But again, Um, if Elton's move is to go to a circus liquor, again, I said this, but to a parking lot in the middle of the night, is is he really getting that much? I mean, that's like a stick man, like faux pas, I feel like. I feel like that brings him down on the stick man level. I mean, what's his his logic there? That's terrible. Well, I mean, he terrible gameplay. I, don't, I don't think he needs any logic. But the thing is, that this might actually go into some sort of conspiracy theory or something. But I think Cher is, like, asexual. Because, I mean, she's saving herself for Luke Perry, right? And she, like, criticizes all of her friends for, like, dating high school boys. But she isn't actually... She's never had a boyfriend. You know, she wants Christian to be in love with her, but not, like, be into her. Like, I think she's asexual, and that's why she wasn't into it. Otherwise, she wasn't... There wasn't some, like random parking lot in the middle of the night i mean that probably would have worked every other time for elton right let's just go the whole mile todd and say our conspiracy theory Cher is andy stitzer Cher is the 40 year old virgin she's a virgin who can't drive 
and she lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> That's true. And, and that is where the comparisons end. And she's friends with Paul Rudd. <laughs> and she knows Paul Rudd. There we go. <laughs> I, I, I think going, going to what Todd was saying, I, I think the thing with Elton, though, is Elton's like the coolest kid in school. And that move would work on everybody but the coolest girl in school. I think well, that's what happened. Is she really the coolest girl in school, though? I mean, I, I think that she just wasn't into it because she was so preoccupied thinking about something else or, and trying to set him up with somebody else. You know, I mean, it, it would have worked even if she had her guard down. Exactly. She totally emmed herself out there. That's what happened. Yeah. I think she's yeah. asexual. <laughs> Speaking of that, I should have just cast Anya Taylor-Joy as as Cher, since she's the one who played Emma in this year's Emma. Yeah, that that's actually perfect. That's actually not bad casting. I could almost see her pull it off. And it's yeah. actually probably a better movie than Defy Bloods, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm sure it is. Emma is a very good movie, and and make sure you, it's Emma, period, not Emma. Emma's with Gwyneth Paltrow. Emma, period, is with Anya Taylor-Joy and, uh, and Bill Nye. Okay, so that was biggest stick man, biggest douchebag, Zach. Who's the biggest douchebag? A uh, lot of lot of uh, people in in the running here. Um, I don't want to mention anyone. You might mention. I'm just going to go with my pick, which is everyone on the freeway, which uh, includes the old woman who flips them off, the truck driver who might have to go above 50 miles per hour or his truck might explode. <laughs> Conspiracy theory and the motorcycle gang. They're all douchebags. That's a good call. That is, that is a good call. Uh, my, I'm going to go biggest douchebag. I'm going to go Christian. Um, because he's totally leading on share that entire time. And, I mean, who tries to be Marlon Brando? I mean, seriously? I mean, someone in the 90s trying to be Marlon Brando in every way except for his, like, super high-pitched laugh, is kind of a douche move, dude. <laughs> you think the death of Sammy Davis Jr. left an opening in the Brat Pack? Or frat yeah, pack? <laughs> that's another great line. <laughs> Do you like Billy Holiday? I love him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, Christian's my biggest douchebag. I think he's closeted. I think he can't, he can't tell people he's gay. Uh, even though the movie has a lot of hints, very subtle hints, like him reading Junkie by William Burroughs. Um, and bringing but, over, and he's being crazy about tr- Tony Curtis and bringing over Sporadicus. Sporadicus, mixed of Sporadic and, and Spartacus. And some like it hot. I mean. <laughs> However, Let's watch I, the movie where Tony Curtis dresses as a girl. Yeah. The, <laughs> the most compelling evidence for Christian being a douche, though, is the way that he does treat Mel Horowitz. And, you know, he says, eh. I, I don't need a drink. Thanks. Nice pile of bricks you got here, man. That's pretty douchey. Like, I just recently watched Guys and Dolls, and and Christian in this could be playing Marlon Brando playing Sky Masterson in Guys and Dolls. Okay. I can see it. Yeah. Well, my douchebag is Josh Lozoff as Logan, and I really kind of thought it was Nikki Cat. Uh, for when I was watching it, uh, he's he's got That's a high lawyer. school kid working with him, and he blows up at her, you know, 
calls her a moron because she did something wrong. I mean, he's an asshole, you know? I mean, what do you say? Uh, do whatever you want with your butts, I'm calling in sick. I mean, that's as douchey as the line as I've ever heard. <laughs> but yeah. He, it totally should have been played by Nicky Cat. I didn't realize... Conspiracy theory, if it was Nicky Cat, Todd would have given it three and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> and he might have been my favorite minor character. <laughs> well, and if Giovanni Ravisi was Josh, this would have been a four-star movie. Oh, man! I mean, I'm not going to dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just throw everyone. I, who what? Who didn't have a role in Friends in this movie? Didn't Alicia Silverstone play like Rachel's sister? No, that was Reese Witherspoon. Well, weren't they both her sisters? I feel like they were. The actor who played uh, Logan. First of all, I did not know his name was Logan until you just said that, Todd. That's interesting. But Clueless was his last film appearance. Is he dead? <laughs> uh, no, according to IMDb, he's alive. He lives in Michigan. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's that guy that was hit by Jimmy Fallon in Dearborn, Michigan. I don't know. Maybe he is dead. <laughs> he never turned back, so we will never know. <laughs> Conspiracy theory. I was wrong. Alicia Silverstone was never in Friends. Reese Witherspoon was up for the role of Cher, though. I mean, I mean it basically sense. would have just been her role in uh, Legally Blonde, right? There's some similarities, yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see here. Do you guys have any flaws? Uh, I do. I have a couple. Uh, well, I mean, they might just be in the whole category of gripes but in the beginning the characters are talking way too fast like they are talking over each other and there's a narration it's like i'm watching gilmore girls or something i could not understand what they're doing you have to watch it twice to actually understand the whole thing number two josh makes a sandwich and it is mayonnaise and turkey but he hardly puts any mayonnaise on there it's just bread and, and he, that is really disturbing it's just one loaf of bread too that he flips in half and also, I, I feel like this is the movie that got Alicia Silverstone the part in Batman and Robin because she treats her father with, like, all this stupid, you know, like, hey, you need to eat this way and whatever. She does the exact same thing with Uncle Alfred. Uh, and she's just nagging her father just like she nags her Uncle Alfred. It's the same character. And Oh, this totally got her that role. I was thinking the same thing. My number one conspiracy theory is that Cher is, uh, well, and basically the movie is, if Ferris Bueller actually went to school... Because they, he, she and he manipulate everybody, including the teachers, their friends. Uh, she skips class and she gets away with it. Everything always works out for her. And, it, like, I don't know. She's just super popular just because of her disregard for conventions and rules. She is Ferris Bueller, female form. I, I, I mean, I, I saw it at one point, couldn't get out of my head the rest of the movie. This movie is... if. Ferris Bueller was set at the school. I love it. I love it. I know. I could. I could not stop thinking about it once I put that together. I was like, I feel like Ferris did that. And then yeah, kept kept piling up. Life moves pretty fast. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I know. Oh, that's man. really that's really upsetting. Maybe I should assign you that to watch for next week. I've been, but I've been bragging about that for fifteen years, man. I, I know, I, but I made going. you watch Catch Me If You Can, so, you know. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, do you have, uh, do you have any uh, 
Any flaws or conspiracy theories? All right, well, I already I was going to talk about Cher as the 40-year-old version. I have another, a couple more conspiracy theories. Uh, we got to talk about the KU hat that Paul Rudd is wearing in this movie. Um, it's <laughs> kind of out of nowhere. Um, I don't know what to say about it. it. It's not a conspiracy. It's just worth noting that, um, you know, you bleed Jayhawk, and uh, it emanates even Rock in your chalk. roles. Rock chalk forever. Is it just um, me, or was Murray wearing, like, a Charlotte Hornets sweatshirt before they existed? Because I, they weren't. Oh, they came around in like ninety one, ninety two, I think. But I don't Mer- think that was a Charlotte Hornets sweatshirt. It was just the perfect <clears throat> colors for it. I don't know. I, I it was Marie's like also, stuck in my brain. Marie's also wearing a Cordell Stewart um, Pittsburgh Steelers jersey too. No, yeah, it's it, not Cordell Stewart. It's Neil O'Donnell. Oh, <laughs> it's number sixteen. I guess. Cordell I guess that's Stewart true. is he number ten. Have been, he, Neil O'Donnell would have been the quarterback in ninety. That there's a conspiracy there theory there somewhere. I don't know about what, but that's interesting. I like saw our, the same thing. Like he's wearing about... a si- number sixteen Steelers jersey. I'm like, why is he wearing a Neil O'Donnell jersey? This is ridiculous. It's like when Requiem for a Dream we were trying to figure out if it was Alan Houston or what Larry Johnson or whatever on the newspaper. I don't, yeah, I forget who the other one was. No, it was John Starks. I think I don't know. Um, and then another conspiracy theory I had is that uh, when Josh and Cher go to that uh, the Mighty Mighty Boston's concert and Ty shows up and, you know, we see Cher sees Josh, the guy that he's talking to, okay, what, he found like the only adult in the room? Now, who does he look like? I'm just going to put that out there. Who does that look like from another movie we've deep dived? I can't picture the character. All right, never mind. Okay. I'm saying that that guy is the same guy that is the doctor that rushes up to Penny Lane slash Emily Rugburn's room and helps her uh, detox from her overdose. Ooh. Yes. It's a fat white guy with a beard. Because we don't see a lot of those in movies. I like it. Yeah. I Um, I wish I could picture the character and I would agree with you. (laughs) I, I don't I don't have a lot of flaws. Uh, I didn't understand whether Miss Geist was a teacher or a guidance counselor. Maybe she's both. I'm not sure because she's in the guidance counselor's room a lot. Um, my wife pointed out this one. There's no fire alarm that goes off when Cher is cooking. Now, this was something I did not notice until just last night when I rewatched it. Cher is cooking like a loaf of cookie dough in the oven. I always thought it was like a burrito or something, but uh, I, I didn't notice that until rewatching it again. How would that have been a burrito? <laughs> I don't know. It's something. I thought it was like like a pork loin or something. Or maybe a potato? <laughs> no, it, it lands like it's definitely dough. <laughs> Yeah, there there is no fire alarm. That is is interesting. We have an inside joke on this podcast that whenever I have to run off and do something, you say that something's burning. This is the scene I think of whenever you you say that. Um, And then uh, the whole uh, scene where um, Lucy doesn't speak Mexican, um, that, yeah, no. I don't think Cher would say that. Cher is progressive enough to know that the Hadians want to party with us in our country. (laughs) So progressive enough to know how to pronounce Hadian. (laughs) I don't think she would think that Lucy is speaking Mexican, but okay, whatever. She's from El Salvador. You get mad when people think you're from below sunset. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, there's definitely some issues with... uh language in the movie that would not be accepted 
today. Yes. Yes. Uh, all right. So my my conspiracy theory is that um, is that Murray's father. Do we ever hear Murray's last name? No. Well, I'm going to say that Murray's last name is Jones, and his father's name is Pete. When he was in high school, he was known as Petey, and he went to T.C. Williams High School in the 70s and played for Coach Herman Boone in Remember the Titans. I like it, but I was picturing his father to be Dennis Haysbert. Safe drivers say 50%? Exactly. Uh, so that's my that's my conspiracy theory, and the most updated thing is the fact that their idea of a of a happening party is going to a concert with a ska band playing. <laughs> and that's that's the most outdated thing I I, I found in this, <laughs> and and watching the ska band, yeah. Zach, Zach won't appreciate this, but Todd will watching the ska ska band. I kind of thought it might have been the OC Supertones. <laughs> I mean the, the OC for Orange County. I mean yeah. OC yeah. Supertones, Zach, OC Supertones are a Christian ska band from the 90s. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's get into our last couple categories here. LVP, MVP. Uh, we're going to go to Zach first. Okay, well, uh, the MVP of this movie clearly is Alicia Silverstone. I mean, this was her star-making performance. She was in the Aerosmith videos as basically a sex object. One of the things I love about this movie is that I don't really think this movie sexualizes her that much, which is amazing. Maybe that's a testament to Amy Heckerling being a woman director. I don't know, but I don't really feel like she's ever fetishized in this movie. Now, granted, I'm you know I'm uh, you know m- coming from a male perspective, but I feel like that would have been the tendency in nine out of ten different directors' versions of this movie. And so uh, she comes across as someone who's authentic and intelligent. I mean, that's the irony of the movie is the movie's called Clueless and yet she's Cher is actually a really intelligent, smart person. I mean, she says the line brutally rebuffed and she knows, uh, you know, Hamlet and she's uh, extremely worldly and intelligent. So I think she's, uh, she's the obvious MVP for this movie. Okay. Do you have an LVP? Oh, LVP for this movie. Um, I think I would go the whole movie of Fast Times at Ridgemont High because this movie gets compared with Fast Times at Ridgemont High and it's so much better. That is just incorrect. Uh, my, my LVP for this movie is every teacher that Cher was able to talk into a better grade because that's just BS, man. Just by negotiate that, like that that whole bit about oh, th- this is just opening negotiations. I was like, okay, that that's great to say and all, but as a teacher, I am offended by <laughs> by the fact that she was able to negotiate her way into a better grade. Well, I think um, clear, clearly she doesn't though. I think that 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 fails. The only way she's able to change her grade is by putting Mr. Hall in a better mood to make him perpetually happy. No, there were three grades she negotiated. One was Mr. Hall, and the other two, she just went, like, like, yeah. Well, she didn't negotiate with Mr. Hall. He didn't didn't agree with with her attempts to negotiate. So my MVP is Mr. Hall, because he's the only one that actually is acting like a teacher in the whole thing. He's the only one with a brain in this school. My actual MVP is the soundtrack, because it is such a great 90s soundtrack. I have the whole soundtrack on my phone. I like, the, I like when they use what the the Sonic Youth song from uh, Juno. 
that I mean, I guess it's probably immortalized in Gino, but yeah, I, I like that that scene where they, like they show all those like skater guys walking. All the young dudes. Them. Yeah. That, what do you think was the scene. what was the best use of song? I'm sorry, quickly. What was the best use of song in this movie? I'd have I like to watch the, it again. The, I like the opening too, but I mean, the, other than the, the muffs, song. kids in America. That's yeah. that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, you can't go wrong. That was a stupid question because they're all they're all great songs. So, what's your favorite then? Well, since I watched this movie last night, I've had the mighty mighty Boston stuck in my head of "Where Did You Go," and I don't know why, but that's that's a great song uh, as well. But the MVP in terms of songs is obviously "Rolling with the Homies" because it's mentioned so often in the movie, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a hand gesture with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also like how when uh, when Ty wants to uh, wants to burn everything that reminds her of Elton, that Cher refuses to let her burn the the cassette tape of that so she could keep it. You yeah. know. All right, Todd, LVP MVP. Uh, so my LVP is similar to Zach's douchebag. It's the drivers in California because not only does every driver suck, including Cher. Uh, that's everybody on the freeway is horrible and the dmv guy is an asshole so i mean all of them and it's because of the dmv guy probably but my does the dmv guy work with chai mcbride and gone in 60 seconds i think he does i think they're buddies like they have coffee together when they don't have drivers but my mvp is donnie is tricky mona may who is the costume designer because every character is defined by how they dress and like Dion's hat game is like off the charts even more so than the language I feel like the movie is defined by the look and the look is all about the costumes and about how 90s and every everything it is and I, I feel like that is the absolute best aspect of the movie can we just give a shout out to to 1995 share having a touchscreen like wardrobe computer also very Ferris Bueller that that was the that was probably the first time yes. I, I made that connection. <laughs> That's a good point. All right. Okay. There's our deep dive. Let's wrap this up. Quote of the day time. Uh, Zach, you get to go first. All right. So many great lines in this movie. We've mentioned several of them, but the one, one that we have not that I'll go with is um, searching for a boy in high school is as useless as searching for meaning in a Pauly Shore movie. Now, very few parts of this movie were edited like there's no deleted scenes there's there's nothing that was kept cut um put off the cutting room floor except for this scene that amy heckerling says do you know originally who the actor was in that line it wasn't Polly shore searching for a boy in high school is useless as searching for a meaning in such and such movies can you think of what actor is that it, was is this gonna is it, is it age badly is that the problem uh not necessarily it's just sort of interesting uh, Mike Myers. No, good guess though. It's kind of kind of in that in the same territory. John Belushi. Have, no, the original line is searching for a boy in high school is as useless as searching for meaning in a Chevy Chase movie. Oh, I was more right than Ouch. Terry. Ouch. Because <laughs> she, you know Amy Heckerling had worked with Chevy Chase and apparently uh, did not like him very much. Oh, in, in European vacation, right? Yeah, so Sherry Lansing, head of Paramount, insisted that it become Polly Shore. Secretly, I actually think that line still holds up pretty well in 2020. Oh, it totally does. If, it, if, if who's watching it knows who Polly Shore is, it totally holds up. I, I find it funny that Todd and I both went with SNL a lot, 
alums. That was pretty good. You were close. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go next. Uh, my quote is not from Clueless. My quote is uh, my favorite quote from Postcards from the Edge. Um, and this is a, 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 a exchange between Dennis Quaid's character named Jack and Meryl Streep's character named Suzanne. And Jack says to Suzanne, I don't like this particular side of you. And Suzanne says, I'm not a box. I don't have sides. This is it. One side fits all. <laughs> Beautiful. And that, yeah, it, it was a pretty great line. I was like that, and that just like describes everybody. It's like, yeah, no, it, it's it's all part of me. You you can't pick which sides you like. It it's all it all is. So yeah, and and that's that describes this podcast too. I mean, every part of this podcast is uh, it's one side fits all. <laughs> I like it. So. We reviewed Defy Bloods. I have two quotes from two very much better, uh, you know, uh, Vietnam War movies. First of which is The Deer Hunter, which is the greatest movie ever made. Axel says, which I would describe your your guys' review, you're so full of shit, you're going to float away. But my other quote comes from another very much better uh, Vietnam War movie, which is Tropic Thunder, and is Les Grossman. <laughs> and he says... You kick in the door to my house, I'll ants in your pants, suck in your left nut to get a TiVo scrap for a third runner-up, Sexiest Man Alive in 1998, and you're asking if I'm serious? And that's kind of how I describe this podcast, I guess. The second you said, better Vietnam War movie, I was thinking in my head, he's going to quote Tropic Thunder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, there were a lot of them that I could quote, but on the Les Grossman, it just seemed appropriate. Well, I mean, yeah, whenever you can quote Les Grossman, it's a good day. Just take a step back and literally f*** your own face! <laughs> kind of sad that prior to Def- Defy Bloods, the most definitive account of African-American soldiers in Vietnam was probably <laughs> Tropic Thunder. Kirk Lazarus. <laughs> Someone in blackface, yeah. It's, you know. <laughs> uh... Well, on that note, uh, we're going to draw this podcast to a closing. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, make sure you tell everybody you know about us so we can be heard by more people. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with another podcast. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs> <laughs>